You're listening to this Sunday's sermon from Hope Church RVA. To find out more about Hope, plan your next visit, or support the work we're doing in Richmond and beyond, visit HopeChurchRVA.com. Good morning to you who are joining us online. Uh, two things I just want to mention. Uh, first of all, Pete pulled out the doctor, David Dwight card. Like, I said, you know, that's what we're laughing about. I'm like, you pulled out the doctor card. He said, yeah, I don't know. I don't know why I did that. So anyway, it's time to get a little respect around here. Okay. Uh, two things. One, if you've been around Hope for a while, you may remember this, but we are going to embark on the 90-day Bible journey again. And we're going to do that starting right in the new year in January, culminating in Easter. If that is uh, landing for the first time for you, this is like a 90-day blitz experience moving through the Bible. So we'll have various ways you can do this. You can do it in a, you know, old school written Bible. You can do it through audio Bibles. You can do this through online Bibles. It is a, a lot to engage it. Like some of you are thinking, is he out of his mind? Like 90 days, a whole Bible? You can do it. And we did this once four years ago, and we had all the same apprehensions, like, are you kidding? Can you do this? It was really quite remarkable, the experience that we had together as a church. So for those of you type A's, I know what this means. You're all of a sudden looking up on your phone right now. How do I get this 90-day Bible started? Don't worry, we'll do it together in time. Second thing to let you know about is if you are in town for Christmas, we would invite you to go ahead and reserve seats for our Christmas services. We opened those registrations last Sunday, and over 3,000 of them have been reserved. So if you haven't done that yet, I'd love to encourage you to do that. About, uh, I think, nine, nine services on the 23rd and 24th. So, songs of the season. We're emphasizing these five first Christmas carols. They're the Christmas songs. They're the first songs that come from people's hearts when we learn about the arrival of Jesus Christ. So last week was Elizabeth's song, today is Mary's song, next week Zechariah's song, following week the angel's song, and then Sunday the 26th day after Christmas is Simeon's song. There's a beautiful symmetry in my mind to the way these flow and the way they unfold and we get to enter into that symmetry. So. If you want to write your own sort of songs that are expressions of your own heart, I'm doing this. I think a number of people are doing this. Just week by week, writing one of these sort of poem songs, an expression of your own heart as you come toward Christmas. And I don't know, maybe share those with friends. Or if you're in small groups, you want to do that. Or families, share some of these together. It could be kind of beautiful by the time we get to Christmas that we've got these songbooks to share. Last week was Elizabeth's song. And part of the context of Elizabeth's song is that her husband, Zechariah, a priest, was in the temple. He was offering the burning of incense. The angel Gabriel appears to him and says, your wife is going to conceive. So without giving that whole sermon all over again, the summary of it is Zechariah says to the angel, no way, no how. That's his response. His response is basically no way, no how. Or if you're from New York, forget about it. Like, it ain't happening. <clears throat> Mary is informed by the angel that she is going to conceive and that this will be a birth by the Holy Spirit. Mary's response is 
small ways different than Zechariah's, but massive ways different than Zechariah's. What Mary says effectively is, yes way, how? So Zechariah was like, no way, no how. Mary is, yes way, how? The difference in the expression of faith is really significant. So we're going to be focusing on Mary. I would say a subtext of my adult life, and I'm being honest and a little bit personal. You know, as the years go by, you experience different things. There are various times where you are made aware of things that you wish were not true. Whether it's something you've learned about yourself that's kind of negative and you're becoming aware of a blind spot and you kind of wish it wasn't true of you, but it is or whether it's hard news that you hear about someone you love, you just wish it wasn't true. And I think when I was much younger, because I wished so much that these things weren't true, I kind of wished them away. And the problem with that is you fail to deal with them. And failing to deal with the truth is always gonna end up in a larger tangle than the hardship of dealing with the truth. Mary's gonna be informed of something that, to use modern phrase, is going to rock her world. And it's also going to be beautiful to her, but it's going to put her at tremendous risk for a host of different reasons. In many respects, I think sometimes you could get this kind of news and wish it away, like, I, I don't want it to be true. But knowing that we have to deal with what's true, I think, is part of maturation. So there are times where I'll say to Elizabeth, I wish this wasn't true, but it is, and so we've got to deal with it. Okay, so here is Mary's song. She's been informed by the angel Gabriel that she will conceive by the Holy Spirit's work in her, and Jesus Christ will be born. Conceived, she will know about Jesus more personally than anybody for nine months. She's had this personal announcement from the angel She's been instructed that the Holy Spirit will bring this birth about. Her question is how? I think maybe there might be like, even like, and you know, am I gonna have like a normal pregnancy? Is this gonna feel like the way a woman normally has a pregnancy? Like this is the Messiah and all of that. The fact of the matter is she's gonna experience this pregnancy in ways that she understands better than anybody else. So she'll share it with Joseph and others will know about it but I'm now speaking kind of motherhood, even though it's a stretch for me as a guy, right? But a woman knows the intimate nature of the pregnancy in ways that nobody else does. And there's beauty in that. Okay, so she's been informed of this and this is her answer. Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. For he has been mindful of the humble estate of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Okay, so Mary's been informed by the angel of this magnificent experience, which is going to be both beautiful and threatening, 
right? Because she's betrothed to her husband and to be found pregnant before you were married was considered adulterous. And in that day, the penalty was stoning, death. So she's going to get this beautiful news and it's going to be threatening news. Last week, I sort of began this topic about how there are so many times in life where we have the two rails that run simultaneously. You can have beautifully happy, wonderful things going on in your life, and you can also have really hard things going on in your life simultaneously. And somehow, I'm not sure, but I think most of us got in our minds that hard things and beautiful things would be sequential, like one, then the other. Like we'd have really great times, then we'd have hard times, then we'd have great times, then we'd have hard times. But really, the way life rolls out is often these run together. They're like two rails. Simultaneously in our lives, we can have beautiful things happening and really hard things happening. And many of us have had times where we could identify these types of seasons. So Mary's informed of this and her song, which I just read, part of the power of it to me is it's just what comes out of her. Like, I don't think anybody said to her, hey, Mary, if an angel tells you you're going to be pregnant and going to be conceiving the Savior by a virgin birth, this is what you should say. We get what just comes out of her. And you know what just comes out of us is quite revealing about what's actually inside of us, right? Many of us are taught to be very polite and say the right thing, but if we could be unfiltered, we'd be like saying it really differently. We had dinner with friends last night. We were talking about the TV show, The Office, right? And we're like, some of us like it, some of us don't. And the reason the people who like it like it is they're like, because he, you know, Michael, is so unfiltered. He just says it the way like everybody thinks, but nobody would say. So here's the thing about Mary. What's just coming out of her is not only what she's saying, it's what she thinks. It's who she is. It's how she sees herself. And this is quite remarkable. I have this feeling that in the Protestant church, I don't know how much you get into this Protestant Catholic stuff, but for those who are a little bit attentive to it, the Catholic church venerates Mary in a particular way. I wouldn't do that, but I do think that we have largely missed her because some Protestants are like, hey, we don't want to overdo the Mary thing and sound like Catholics. But in so doing that, I think we have many times underdone the Mary thing and paid too little attention to her. She is just remarkable, and she really needs our attention in terms of understanding what does a person of profound faith look like? She is that kind of an example. Okay, so what just comes out of her is, she says, my soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he's been mindful of the humble state of his servant. Okay, notice, notice where she goes. My soul glorifies the Lord. However this has happened, I think for many of us in American Christianity, what we've actually thought is the Lord is supposed to glorify me. Like he's supposed to serve me and make my life glorious. And in so seeing it this way, we've gotten the order of things completely turned upside down. And if we get the order of things with God turned upside down, we're writing the script for our own frustration. Because when we are pursuing a kind of faith that's not the way it really works, we're going to be constantly frustrated that, quote, this thing isn't working the way I think it's supposed to work. And I do think we're at risk with American modern Christianity that, hey, the whole point here is God's supposed to make my life go wonderfully and be glorious. He's supposed to serve my glory. Mary doesn't see it that way. 
And the Bible doesn't see it that way. Mary sees it and she says, my soul glorifies the Lord. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. Do you know the word blessed? See, I think if Mary was an American who lived in 2021, she would have said, from now on, all generations will call me great. Because that's seemingly what everybody's looking for. But notice she doesn't say they'll call me great. Although personally, I do think she was great. What she says is they'll call me blessed, meaning I have been the beneficiary of God's goodness to me. This is the way she sees the world. This is the heart within this woman. And I feel confident that this is why God used her in these unique circumstances. Okay, so notice her humility and her focus on God's glory. All right, let's back up for a minute and think about Christmas, the Christmas stories. The richest New Testament content is all in the Gospel of Luke. Last week I said he's the artist of the heart. He writes with the details that depict the birth narrative of Christ more than the other Gospel writers. Okay, but here's what everybody is at risk of. If you've been in the church for a while or raised in the church or familiar with the Bible, you are at risk of sentimentalizing these stories and compartmentalizing them as if they're not real. And when we do that, the, the punch, the power, the vitality just goes away. And we just kind of throw this aside and we make it sentimentalized stuff. So what do I mean by that? Well, here's Mary, this woman. She says, my soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Turn ahead a little bit. The disciples ask Jesus, hey, teach us to pray. And when he does, he says, our Father in heaven, holy is your name. And thy kingdom come, thy will be done. All power and glory is yours. Like, I think you see the influence of his mother in those kind of words. Did Mary teach Jesus that? Undoubtedly, she influenced him. Whether she sat down with him and said, hey, let me teach you this or not, I don't know. But undoubtedly, she influenced him. So when the disciples say, teach us to pray, Jesus doesn't say, this is how you should pray. Lord, glorify me, make my life great, solve all my problems, fix all my dilemmas. There's none of that. His focus in the praying is on the glory of God. I can't help but think, I think this is spillover from your mom. This is what I mean by make it real. It had to be. It had to have some influence on him. Okay, how about this? Speaking of making it real, you have Mary and you have Joseph, and Mary has gotten word from the angel that she's going to conceive. Joseph, if you've read the Gospels closely, he's also gotten word about this. And then Elizabeth and Zechariah got word about all this. But all of this is coming to Mary by surprise. It's all coming to her completely out of the blue by surprise. And so here's Mary, and she gets word from the angel. Okay, that was by surprise. Then she goes to visit Elizabeth. When she walks in Elizabeth's house, Elizabeth says, blessed am I that the mother of my Lord should walk in the house. Well, that was by surprise. Mary didn't know she's gonna walk in Elizabeth's house, open the door, and Elizabeth's gonna say, who am I that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And you know this verse that I love in the gospels, it says Mary treasured all these things in her heart. She clearly was a thoughtful person. Okay, so then, I just wonder how often she and Joseph talked about this kind of stuff. Then the birth comes and the baby's born 
And these shepherds come like, I don't know, like stumbling in the door. Like these guys come off the hillside because the angels in their glory announced to the shepherds the birth of the baby. They hustle to Bethlehem. Okay, I am embellishing it, but a little bit like real life, I'm like, Joseph says to Mary, do you know these guys? I don't know these guys. Did you invite them? I didn't invite them. What are they doing here? I have no idea what they're doing here. Friends, this is often the way it works in life with God. Okay, and then things like settle down, right? It seems like, quote, life is back to normal. 40 days after the birth of Jesus, we'll come to this in a few weeks, Simeon's song. Mary and Joseph take Jesus to the temple to be consecrated. And they come into the temple and this old man starts walking up to them. Who is this old guy? I don't know. Why is he looking at us this way? I don't know. Why is he walking toward us? I don't know. Do you know him? I don't know him. Does your father know him? No, my father doesn't know him. What is he doing? This guy's making me nervous. He's walking over. And then it says in Simeon's song, he took the baby in his arms. Did he just take the baby? Like that would be freaky. Or did he say, hey, can I hold your baby? That still would be freaky, even if he asked. But it says he took the baby in his arms. And then he says, now your servant can die in peace. I've seen salvation. Well, this is by surprise. And then he hands the baby back. And then it seems that he turns to Mary and he says, hey, a word with you. This baby is going to cause the rising and falling of many in Israel. And many hearts are going to be revealed because of this little infant child you've got here. And oh, by the way, a sword is going to pierce your own soul over this child. Like what? Merry Christmas? <laughs> and, and he hands the baby back. You have to know that Mary and Joseph were like, what was that all about? Right? Okay, we have to take this out of sentimentality and bring it into reality. So, she says, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He's performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. Do you hear that? He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. A lot of us know how to cover over our pride. A lot of us can gloss over our arrogance. So all appearances would be, ah, oh, this guy looks like a peach or this woman looks like a you know, beautiful, humble woman. In your inmost thoughts, what's going on in there? He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. What it means is the gospel filters out the proud. This is what I mean. The nature of the story, all that's happening, a baby born in Bethlehem. You see, simultaneously you have Herod, who is the ruler of this area. And Herod's was a reign of power and a reign of horror. You may remember that after Jesus was born, Herod starts getting wind and word about this guy, this baby that was born, and people are talking about him in miraculous ways. And what does Herod do? He orders the killing of all male babies under two years old. Just the abject slaughter of them. This is not a good guy. The issues of power that are in play with what's happening here are remarkable. Herod is working so hard to build a kingdom that looks powerful and like it has a hold. He's building palaces, he's building special government buildings, and he's, he's, he's enforcing his reign with terror. And Jesus is born. Like there's nothing powerful about him as far as we know. 
So when we come to God, God is incredibly patient, he's incredibly merciful, and he's incredibly graceful. But there is one thing where he is uncompromising. We come on his terms. You cannot come to life and tell God you're coming on your terms. This is the one thing he will not compromise. In Isaiah 42, it says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. So Mary says that he has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. You see, a person who is proud says, all of this is beneath me. All this religion stuff, beneath me. Religion, that's a crutch for weak people. It's all beneath me. I don't do that. I'm strong, I'm smart, I'm proud. I'm a self-made man. I'm an attractive woman. I'm an accomplished professional. I'm a whatever I am. This is all beneath me. Proud in their inmost thoughts. In Acts chapter two, after the resurrection, Peter was preaching and teaching about who Jesus really is. And a bunch of people in the crowd are very moved by this. And they say effectively to him, okay, what do we do? In Acts 2, it says, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repentance is always the first step if we are to come to the true God and come the way he will do this. It's always on his terms. Repentance means I am saying to God, God, I am putting aside myself, my pride, my perspectives, and I am asking you to forgive me of my sin. And now I come to you open to receive you, Jesus Christ. God will not compromise his glory. And while that sounds rigorous, Remember the beginning? It's true. We got to deal with it. And the reason it's beautiful as we begin to deal with this truth is if we forfeit the glory of God, we forfeit God himself. We have no God as we know him. And so because of his majesty, his power, his deliverance, his goodness, his transcendence, his eternity, and all these other things, he won't forfeit his glory. The gospel is designed to filter out the proud. But here's the thing, the proud won't care. You see, the proud will self-filter. The gospel isn't gonna say, you're proud out, you're humble in, you're proud out, you're humble in. The proud will just self-select out because they'll say, this is all beneath me, I don't care, I'm not interested, it's stupid religion. It's for those weak people who use it as a crutch. It's for those antiquated people who talk about sin and religion and all kinds of dumb mythology that's gone. The proud will filter themselves out. In James chapter four, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Notice that these words are not passive words. It says he has scattered those who are proud in their heart. That's not a passive word. Scattering is not a passive word. And he opposes the proud. Dallas Willard says this, when we think about a relationship with God and eternity and heaven, he says, I believe that the only people who will not be in heaven are people who don't want to be there. When you think about it, if you don't really like God, you don't want to be in heaven. So the proud are like, tell me I'm not going to heaven. I'm fine with it. I could care less. Until we all one day 
stand in the presence of God and realize that every knee shall bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and then realize, oh, Mary calls forth this humility and this beauty. Okay, so we know the story, right? We call it the virgin birth. This is Mary. She is conceiving a child, Jesus Christ, who is brought to conception through the Holy Spirit, right? I get it. Everybody's like, "Uh uh-uh, no way. It doesn't work that way. Well, hold on for just a moment, because this was a big obstacle for me in my faith many, many years ago. So Zechariah was told, you and Elizabeth are going to have a child, right? And it's going to be, quote, the natural way. The two of them are going to come together. She's going to conceive and have a child, okay? Mary is going to have a child, and this is going to be through God's design, his special intervention and work. Okay, so I'm going to suggest that both of these babies are miraculous. Why? Because I don't take miracles lightly. When you look at how a baby is formed and how everything happens in the creation of a human being, it is breathtaking. We have no explanation for it. Now, a medical person will say, I do have an explanation for it. It's biological. Honestly, what I would say to you is Mary's virgin birth, I do have an explanation for it. It's theological. I can explain this to you. Somebody can say, well, no, you don't understand all that. I'll say, no, you don't understand all of that either, right? I know you know the biological concepts, but I also know you don't understand all of it. And what I can tell you is with Mary's virgin birth, I understand the theological concepts. Do I understand all of it? No, but I can explain it theologically just as you're arguing that you can explain this biologically. Okay, now some of you are thinking, oh, he's getting cute here. He's playing with words. Hold on a minute. Mary knows that Christ is alive in her. She's whatever, six months pregnant, feels the baby moving inside of her, you know, all this stuff that a woman would know most personally. Mary knows this in ways that nobody else knows. Mary has got Jesus Christ born in her through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Okay, statistics tell us that around the world, about 70,000 people become Christians every day. If you become a Christian, this means that Jesus Christ has become real and alive in your life, spiritually speaking. It means that there are 70,000 virgin births every day. Once again, you're like, oh, that's so cute the way you've done that. No, no, no. No, no, no. We're talking about a real living Jesus Christ in our lives, hearts. That doesn't happen except that the Spirit of God brings about that conception. And yes, this is a spiritual living Christ where Mary's was a physically living Christ. But listen to this in John chapter 3. When Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, he says this, humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. But listen to the word. He says humans can reproduce only human life. The Holy Spirit, however, he gives birth to spiritual life. You see how this is getting juxtaposed because we only know life through our physical bodies. So life as we know it and interpret it is largely weighted toward the physical. Like, yeah, it's all physical. Spiritual, ah, yeah, that's kind of cute. It's a little bit amorphous. It's over here. Notice that Jesus is saying human beings can give birth to only physical life, but God gives birth to spiritual life. 
What Jesus is suggesting is the physical life thing is the smaller. Maybe I'm putting words in his mouth, but kind of the no big deal. It's the spiritual life thing where the payload is, where the biggest reality is. So the Holy Spirit would bring Jesus to life in Mary for the purposes that the Holy Spirit would subsequently bring Jesus to life in the church, 70,000 people a day throughout modern history. I'm not playing with words. Virgin births are happening all the time. Okay, so the conception, a pregnancy, it's like a dawn. It's like the promise of what you know is coming. And then we're waiting, 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 waiting. It's Advent for nine months. Advent is the season of waiting. Fleming Rutledge, in her book about Advent, she says, as a general rule, Americans are people of action. We don't take long lunches like the French. We don't take siestas like the Spanish. We don't look forward to our pensions like the English. We don't wait for the crosswalk like to change like the Germans. We aren't fatalistic like the Bangladeshis. Is there anyone I haven't offended yet? All kidding and stereotyping aside, I think it's safe to say that we Americans think of ourselves as busy, busy, busy making things happen. We are the go-go people, and we are a bit impatient with those who aren't full of energy as we are. We don't like passivity. We don't like waiting around. So the theme of waiting and watching that permeates the Advent season strikes a false note with us. We give lip service to it, but we don't take it very seriously. We don't want to sit around watching and waiting. We want to speed things up. We want to move things along. If God isn't going to bring the kingdom, then we'll bring it ourselves. That's the American way. You see, human beings have been working to bring kingdoms from time immemorial. Building palaces, pursuing power, armies, government buildings, building our own personal wealth. All of these efforts to build kingdoms, which are what? They are the overflow of our hungry hearts to try to satiate the longing in our souls and the desire of our hearts. But here's the challenge none of those kingdoms can pay out what they promise because they cannot, in the end, meet the longing of our souls and the hunger of our hearts. So here's Herod bringing and building this magnificent kingdom of power and a tyrannical threat. And over here, right under his nose, without him knowing, the true king is born. All of these juxtapositions of power and glory are getting played out in these Advent narratives. So the pregnancy is a time of waiting, a time of anticipation. Malachi 4.2 says, but for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings and they will go forth skipping like calves released from a stall. The son of righteousness will rise. The picture is a dawn. Isaiah speaks about the Gentiles and all nations will come to the rising of your dawn. The birth of Jesus is the dawn. The full light is yet to come. It means that Christians are people of the dawn. And while the dawn doesn't mean the full light has yet come, anybody who has gone through excruciatingly difficult nights is so grateful just for that first glimmer of light. The hope of it is enormous. And the hope of the first glimmer of light is the anticipation of the full light that is yet to come. Christians are sunrise people. Believers in Christ, that is the church, Believers in Christ, that is the church, that is people in whom Christ has been brought to life by the Holy Spirit, are people of the dawn. 
So here's Herod in his halls of power. And here's little Jesus born in Bethlehem. Nobody knows about Bethlehem or cares. Right under his nose, unnoticed in Bethlehem, the king in his palace. Zechariah 4.10 says, don't despise these small beginnings for the Lord rejoices to see the work begin. And so we get these early pictures of believers and who they are in a world of power contrasts. Growing up outside of New York City, we were often in the city. And the summer after my freshman year in college, I had a summer internship working for a firm on Wall Street. So I was commuting into town, I'm working on Wall Street. And when you walk around the streets down around Wall Street, if you've ever done this, you notice there's an there's a old church called Trinity Church. This is a little picture, and I remember noticing this when I would walk around. So here are all these massively huge buildings, pictures of power, commerce, financial markets, New York Stock Exchange, business, all the pictures of power. And you see down at the end, that's Trinity Church, but it's in the shadows. It's completely overshadowed by these huge, tall towers of power. And this is so much the way it is for the church. It's so much the way it was Jesus being born in a major with Herod building these kingdoms of power. I remember that in Luke chapter 12, Jesus was talking to the believers and he said, don't be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. He calls the believers a little flock. Like, hey, look, I know there are much bigger appearances of power out there. Don't be afraid, little flock. The church, while we wait for Jesus's return, will always be a little flock. We will always be in the minority. We'll be like Trinity Church, overshadowed by the towers of power. But note that Jesus said, don't be afraid, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. The church over the centuries, often hidden, often invisible, meeting in homes, meeting in schools, in places where Christianity is forbidden, meeting in secret, seemingly powerless and without power. And just as Herod is building his palaces, Jesus is born here a little baby. Don't be afraid, little flock. Your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Now, let me try to close with a concept that I think is gonna stretch your sensibilities. Once Mary has become pregnant with Jesus and brought him into the world, and then after Jesus has ascended and the church is born, and Jesus has been born in the hearts of people through the Holy Spirit, we are now the people waiting for his return. John 16, in a conversation with Jesus about this, it says, then some of his disciples asked one another, why is he telling us in a little while you won't see me, and then after a while you will see me? And because I'm going to the Father, Jesus responded by giving them this analogy. A woman has pain in childbirth because her time has come. But when she brings forth her child, she forgets her anguish because of her joy that a child has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. In other words, what he's trying to say is the church is people in whom Christ has been born spiritually. And while we anticipate his return, we are like Mary. The church, you could say, is pregnant, anticipating the return of Christ. And the church knows more personally than anybody in that big world out there what this is all about. 
Mary knew in ways that were clear and personal to her and told to her from God that the Savior was within her. Now the church, those people in whom God has been conceived, knows in ways that are personal to us and told to us from God in Scripture that the Savior is within us and he will come again. The world is building large expressions of power, kingdoms to meet the longing of hearts and the hunger of souls, all of which are kingdoms that will be unable to fulfill such promises for the heart and soul. And then the church, the little flock, nobody's paying much attention to, so small in light of the big towers of power, is pregnant, anticipating the return of the king, the one king whose kingdom will fulfill. As a pregnancy is hidden until the birth, so the church anticipating Jesus' return is pregnant until he comes. What it all means, friends, is the king is coming. Let's pray. Lord God, would you make our hearts like Mary's, where our deep desire is your glory, not ours. Would you forgive us for any ways that we have approached you with pride and demanded that this is done on our own terms? And would you help us come into the joy of releasing all that so that you, Holy Spirit, can bring Christ fully alive in us, we pray. Amen.